Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the Irish contribution to our understanding of consciousness. My guest is James Tunney, who is an Irish barrister, qualified as a barrister who has taught law all over the world. But more importantly for today's discussion, he is an author as well as an artist. He has written The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, as well as two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September and Ireland, I don't recognize who she is. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for that introduction again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you once Thank again. You. Thank you for coming to Albuquerque. That's great for I appreciate your hospitality. Thank you. When we think of the Irish contribution to our understanding of consciousness, I begin to think right away of things like four-leaf clovers because I I had a dear friend, I've talked about her in other programs, Jana Janice, and she said she would hear the clover spirits talking to her and they'd say, pick me, pick me, and she'd reach down and find a four-leaf clover and, and she had a collection of hundreds of them, literally, and and I know that that kind of magic with with spirits and and the idea of a good luck charm and the the four leaf clover is somehow in my mind associated with Ireland. Yes, uh, I, I think that's true. There's all kinds of of variants of that. Uh, I I would say that, and if we go, Ireland has changed quite uh, radically and has uh, modernized and and a lot of good changes, um, but. We can't obviously forget the past, and Ireland was up to very recently an agricultural society, a rural society. So there was a lot of people who were very in touch with the land, who were very in touch with the environment around them. And in Ireland, people had lived in the same place for a long period of time. So there, there was layers of meaning and custom and superstition which had had grown up over over the land, and associated with with that was a very distinctive worldview, uh, a dis very distinctive imagination about the nature of reality. And that nature of reality was very, very open to a whole range of phenomena around it. Um, for example, the other world was, was, was very near. So the spirits and spirits of nature were very, very close. And people had, you could call it in modern times, very superstitious, but a, a very strong belief in the power of certain symbols, uh, in the power of magic, in the reality of magic. Um, and sometimes later on, this was mixed into Christianity. So the Christians took over the pagan sites that were there and realized that it had to have an accommodation. So some of the, some of the pagan, pagan figures, goddesses became saints, for example. But it is true that Irish people do have a certain mentality and it has, it has, spread around with the diaspora, if we can take the, the, the Jewish uh, uh, word for in, in that context and, and, and the idea, uh, it has spread around with the diaspora as well. So we still see surviving elements of 
things which we can trace back to Ireland. And in the United States, it's interesting that you celebrate St. Patrick's Day, which goes back to, to, to that era. Halloween is another Celtic uh, festival uh, about the time when, when the spirits are closest to, to the world. So, so that is an, it's an ancient tradition. It may have modern permutations and distortions, but it goes back to uh, a pre-Christian era. So mm -hmm. it's quite interesting. So yes, I can understand how people, how, how people, a, a lot of Irish people, I can think of my relations and how they would have special habits and even in Christian terms they would bless themselves with particular things they would sometimes put things out for the fairies this is a similar thing in Scotland where I lived Sim similar process for the, with, with the kind of Celtic consciousness mm -hmm. now you uh, shared with me earlier a wonderful experience you had at a, uh, a very special site in Ireland known as Newgrange yeah it's amazing that you're listening to me all the time, Jeff. I'm surprised. Uh, I'm, yeah. But, um, well, to, perhaps to explain to people who have never heard about Newgrange, uh, Newgrange is an ancient construction. The dates are estimated about 5,400 years ago that it was built. Although I have to say, I'm often skeptical about the dating of prehistoric sites. And, and there's, there's, there is uh, evidence that some of the uh, sites are difficult to date. Mm -hmm. So this is a construction which is built with two other uh, constructions, Nout and Doubt, and they are built beside the River Boyne, which is, is north of Dublin. It's not far from, from the capital city. Uh, so it's in the Boyne Valley, which is, has sometimes been called the Valley of the Kings in Ireland because it has fantastic history. It's, it's a really important spiritual site. So they built this construction uh, on, on, on a hill and on the 21st day of December every year and, and for maybe the day before and day after but particularly on the 21st day of December which is the shortest day of the year the sun rises at the extreme point on the horizon on its journey and it shines uh, into the uh, chamber inside the mound through a roof box the passage was built so it goes slopes up into the center the light shines on that day and penetrates into the center of this mound which is built with massive rocks they took huge megaliths huge stones and took them from a number of places around they brought them there 5400 years ago and they built this this construction which which still stands it, it did fall into decay and they, they they have reshaped some of it but the basic construction is still there so it's, it's a dramatic example uh, not only of great engineering there's no water has ever penetrated into the into the central chamber in the central chamber the description of this of the chamber is or the shape is uterine so in many ways it reflects the earth goddess which i think ireland was predisposed towards worshipping goddesses in my, in my view the sun shines into the center uh, and there's a number of readings of that we can't say for certain what that means but obviously you could say well it was the the, the material world the the, the earth was, was the feminine and the sun god may have been a masculine or it could have been that the spirits were establishing a passage of light back home to the sun a number of different a different construction but I got the opportunity I visited many times there's fantastic carvings that you can find all around prehistoric sites around the world you can see them there fantastic artwork 
fantastic evidence that they understood about the heavens. There's very good evidence that it was aligned with Orion. So its relationship to the Boyan is similar to the arrangement of the pyramids in Giza and the relationship with the, with the stars as well, which is interesting. Um, so they're obviously very conscious uh, of astronomy, but I got permission when I, it's a long time, 25 years ago, to be in the chamber on that day. So now it's very, very difficult. There are lotteries uh, to, to, to uh, get in there. I think the year before I was in, it was the Emperor of Japan was had been in there. So they allow a few journalists and a few scientists and a few other people to get in. So you're in this chamber, in the darkened chamber. Uh, it's pitch dark. And the light, you can see a beam of light, like a laser beam coming up and creeping into the center. Uh, a gold, and it varies. It can be gold, red, depending on the... Uh, the, the skyscape, it comes into the center of the chamber, it doesn't stay for long, and then, then it retreats. So they, they use, obviously, scientists, well, it's, a, it's a calendar, well, that's a very kind of, a very narrow view of, of how things work. They tend to oversimplify. They can't explain some of the concepts. There are, there are interesting theories about what this was. There's one theory that it was a giant battery. If you look at the, uh, for example, you can get interesting theories. Uh, there's a lot of quartz stones around it. I think that aspect has been ignored because quartz stones are capable of piezoluminescence, which is where we can, ex or we can create light by putting pressure on, 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 uh, stones, for example. I think they were aware of those things. With the, the Native Americans, the Ute in Colorado, they also use in their ceremonies, uh, crystals inside a leather uh, kind of uh, bag, and they shake it, and it emits light, which is a similar phenomenon. So I think this is a, 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 a familiar uh, idea to prehistoric people, um, and it's obviously very inspirational. It's a, it's obviously some notion of rebirth, and it's a very very deep and profound notion, and. Uh, so it's a, you know it's a fantastic experience. Well, when I think of Ireland, I realize it's a very small country, not a large population. And in fact, there, I believe today many more Irish people living in the United States than in Ireland. Yes, yeah. Uh, and yet, for such a small country, and and also through much of its history, a relatively poor country, uh, it has produced an enormous number of writers and poets and scholars and scientists. That, that's correct. I mean, I, could, I, could, I won't give you a long list, but it is it is very very interesting when you look at uh, people who have come from Ireland. Often they became celebrated. When the parents had emigrated and, and they were able to flower in, in different, in different countries. And it's quite strange. Some of the people that have Irish ancestors that you might not expect. For example, Che Guevara, uh, Charles de Gaulle, Elvis, we've discovered recently that his family came from Ireland. Muhammad Ali had uh, his ancestors in, in Ireland. It's, it's, it's quite diverse as well, uh, of course, in, in American politics. The Kennedys and Reagan and Clinton. And if you go back, people forget about the earlier Ulster Scots Protestant contribution because many of the American, the early uh, American presidents came from an Ulster, Ulster Scots background. So Scots who had come to uh, the northern part of Ireland and then came to the United States. And, and they exerted a, a profound influence in, in, a, in American uh, political life. On the writing side, again, there's a big long list. 
most people are familiar with. I think Dublin has three Nobel laureates for maybe more for, for, for literature. Um, recently, we, it was Seamus Heaney, and we, uh, we, we, we can think of uh, Beckett and uh, Yeats and Joyce and Oscar Wilde and Bram Stoker and a whole long list. Jonathan, Jonathan Swift. Swift yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole long list. Um, so a whole long list of writers. And the, I think there's, a cer- there's certainly odd preoccupations with Irish writers, which we can talk about. And then, of course, we can go back to Bishop Barclay, the, uh, who Yeats also uh, writes poetry about. Uh, Bishop Barclay is one of the singular most important people I can think of when it comes to the understanding of consciousness, the philosophy of mind. Uh, Yeats, Yeats said that, that Bishop Barclay, as he called him, God-appointed, told us that we live in a dream and if we just turn away, that will go away. And actually, those theories of idealism are remarkably consistent but what scientists are saying today. Yeah. So it's when you read it first, you say, oh, that's strange. And then you begin to think about it. And then you look at, funnily enough, what science is saying. And it's corroborating some of those insights. And then, of course, Berkeley and California. And yeah. and Berkeley has been very important in, in my your life. life. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, yeah. very significant. And it's, it's a very significant locus. Mm-hmm. And it's a uh, Berkeley and California is a very significant locus in relation to spiritual development and uh, esoteric knowledge. Let's talk about uh, William Butler Yeats, yes, Nobel yep. laureate poet, who was also a, a practicing magician, a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, William Butler Yeats was an interesting figure because he ca- a lot of the uh, a lot of interesting stuff came from the Anglo-Irish, came from the mixture of the English and the Irish. So um, people outside of uh, Ireland often overemphasize the antipathy towards the English. And it's a mistaken view. The uh, Some of the struggles were against imperialism. They weren't against the, the English people. And, and the, 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 the English and the Irish got on well and mixed well and produced some, some fantastic and ama- amazing people. So in that context, when the Normans came to Ireland, for example, they had a problem after a, a couple of hundred years because they were being assimilated into Irish customs. And in fact, they had to introduce, in the 1300s, they had to introduce what's called the Statutes of Kilkenny, which were a set of laws which prescribed what people could do. It stopped people having long hair. It stopped people living in the Irish customs, for example. So so Yeats was from a kind of uh, aristocratic background, and he was very interested in the occult, but from a very particular emphasis. Uh, he was involved as a practicing music- magician, as we know. He also had his... By which we don't mean stage magic. No, no. So uh, uh, magic magic has been confused with illusionism and, and, and efforts and entertainment in that sense. But but magic is, is a very real discipline that has been around for thousands of years since since people could begin to, to do anything, magic was there. And in fact, this is one of the eras where people don't believe in magic for the first time. But magic was seen to be a, a very powerful force, which is associated in principle with the exercise of the will, and in particular, utilizing the subconscious, unconscious, archetypal powers and drawing on them through, through methods of concentration and methods of ritual to transcend the the uh, rational mind, for example. So a lot of people who are 
who are uh, rationalists. We're, we're, in, we're interested in magic. But, so, but Yeats had a bigger vision. My view was that he was trying to literally spell out a new Ireland, that his magic was not to gain powers himself. He really had a vision that he was creating a new Ireland through his, his practices. Now, he did that in a number of ways. He facilitated the, the growth of Irish theatre. He wrote his poetry. In his poetry, he, he incorporated all the legends of the Fianna, the ancient warrior cast, if you like, I don't, I don't know if it's the correct word, in, in Ireland, the various heroes, the mythic heroes, Cúchulain, the great warrior figure, um, Neve, Emer, all these figures that were in, in the literature, he incorporated them and often used translations and, and played with the ideas and reinterpreted them. So he, as, uh, with a number of, of people in Ireland, had come to the belief that there was something valuable which had been left in Ireland. Uh, and this was his patron lady, Gregory, had also come to the same conclusion. So we have the era of the Celtic twilight, where they began to go and search out the folklore of people. So they began to talk to uh, what they would have called peasants and, and uh, ordinary folk, uh, ordinary people that lived on the land. And they realized that they had a rich culture, uh, an oral culture. And that oral culture had was full of myth, meaning, magic, superstition, tales of the occult, tales of the other world, tales of ancient legend, tales of lands that were lost, tales of mystical lands. The ordinary folk had it. It was a living tradition. This is the important point. It wasn't in books. It wasn't elsewhere. You had to go and talk to the people. And the people had them in their ordinary life. So it wasn't something they'd learned from a book. It wasn't something that they had been initiated into in some secret ritual. It was a lived tradition which involved uh, involved an environment which was full of supernatural beings. Now, these could be reconciled with Christianity as well. So, uh, sometimes there's an exclusivity. Say, you believe that, you can't believe, believe, believe this. I'll give you an example. In Scotland, which has a lot of similar lore, the book, The Secret Commonwealth, was written by a reverend uh, in one of the Protestant churches. So, although he, he had his beliefs and would have been very God-fearing in his domain, he had no problem with accepting these alternative realities that were reported to him from the people and, and he played a role in in saving that as the early Christian church, church did uh, play a role in transcribing the ancient myths of Ireland. Now they may have put their own twist on them but they did do a, a saving role. Now, well let me mention parenthetically mm -hmm. uh, for the benefit of our viewers that that concept of the secret commonwealth has been taken up in a wonderful series of novels by the uh, British, I believe British author uh, Philip Pullman. Yes and uh, my daughters were reading that before I came <laughs> and I don't know if I mentioned to you that they, they, they wondered whether you're in the X-Men series. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. But, but, Xavier, yes. <laughs> but, um, My uh, hero. <laughs> so, so Yeats went out and talked and, and talked to the people. Mm -hmm. They gathered the folklore. So they performed a very useful function because he realized it was dying out. And he realized not only was it dying out, but it was important. So he, he had that, he had that, uh, genuine interest and love, he learned to love certain aspects that hadn't been available to him. At the same time, he had his, in London, he had the, uh, the Golden Dawn. He often 
he often pined for Ireland, and of course he wrote his famous poem, The Lake Isle of Inish Free. I will arise and go now and go to Inish Free in a small cabin built there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows shall I have there, a hive for the honey bee, and live alone in the bee loud glade, and I shall have some peace. It goes on. So, uh, but he believed that he was manipulating the public to create his new Ireland, to to, to nourish, if you like, the, the nationalist movement. And to a certain extent, he did. So when 1916, when the rebellion happened, uh, although he wasn't advocating violence, he asked himself in the, in the poem, did my words send out those men to die? He, he didn't believe that uh, there would be another rebellion. And he was uh, partly surprised. And he'd seen these people uh, going around Dublin. And he, I don't think he'd been uh, hugely impressed with them because the the 1916 revolution was led by a range of people with di different interests. It's quite interesting how they got there. So, uh, but he, so in his head, he was preserving what was there, trying to, 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 to leave for posterity some evidence of what had been hitherto, but also with an eye to the future, uh, wondering could he use his magic to uh, create a new Ireland. Also, it was interesting, he communicated with spirits, mm. and he had a spirit guide, which he discovered, who I think he discovered it in an ear trumpet in, uh, in London, but began to talk to him from uh, a few hundred years ago, north of Africa, uh, and he, this figure kept coming back to him in his seances, and uh, so... Now, I understand his wife was a medium, Yes, that's right. That, that, that's uh, that's an important uh, part. So so she could help him yeah. with a, a lot of things. So uh, it's difficult to disentangle how much of the artistic inspiration comes from a different dimension. And again, you know, you look at a certain author and sometimes you like them in a different mood, you don't like them. Sometimes you have to come back to an author and look or a poet and look at them in the light of a particular perspective to understand the symbols they use. Mm -hmm. You look at a symbol... For example, like the rose, and you realize that when someone like Yeats uses it, he's, he's drawing in the whole history of the symbolism of the rose and Rosicrucianism and all these uh, esoteric and mystical things. So when he's talking about some of these issues, he, he's, he's, uh, he's not talking in a simple way. And also, we can, he was interested in the Vedanta and the Indian spirituality, and he saw a close connection between Indian uh, philosophy and spirituality and the what he heard off the people and some of the stories and some of the words mm -hmm. and he believed they were connected. He wrote a book called A Vision yeah. which in which as I understand it uh, he uh, describes these seances with his wife and how he received a specific communication in uh, from the spirits regarding uh, the symbolism uh, to use in his poetry. Yes, yeah, that's that's the point about the, um, the when you're looking at certain artists, the there's different layers to the meaning. So one, one has to be one looks looks at them on a superficial level and say, well, that doesn't mean anything. Without the knowledge of those underpinning doctrines, uh, it's difficult to gain access yeah. to them. But with them, they begin to become something else. But uh, he was certainly a visionary. Later on. Uh, he became a senator. My grandfather was a, a senator as well. Uh, um, but Yeats was seen to be, he was accused of having sympathies with uh, fascists at the time. I don't, I, I don't, I don't see the evidence for it. One of the usual things. 
Um, but again, there, had, there was a general, there was a general fear of this kind of association with nationality and mysticism yeah. in the context of how history evolved in Europe. So mm -hmm. I can understand the fears, but I don't think there were. Well, of course, in my lifetime, uh, your lifetime, and the lifetime of your parents and and grandparents, there's been a lot of violence associated with uh, the Irish Revolution and its repercussions, and the as you mentioned, the conflicts in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. uh, that must have also impacted. Uh, the the culture and even the mystical spiritual sensitivities and perhaps also the um, the title of your novel Ireland I I don't recognize her anymore. Hmm. I suppose I took the same path as uh, from the island to uh, or the island and uh, Huxley Huxley's path I suppose um, from writing about perennial philosophy to dystopian novels. Yeah. So Ireland, I don't recognize who she is. It's not a political novel. So I'm not interested in writing about contemporary politics or all that kind of stuff. I'm not interested in contemporary nationalism. It's just not what I'm interested in. And one of the reasons why I'm not interested in because all my family on my father's side for gone back for generations were involved in the struggle for independence. So, uh, I, I'm, I'm just not interested at this stage. And in some ways, um, you can see that a lot of political struggles are futile in the end. What, what people do, um, may not work out as they intended. It's different to struggle, to struggle against something and struggle for something or create something. Um, but anyway, and I'm, I'm not taken away from what they were doing or, or casting any aspersions at all. But for example, I, I, if I go back to my great grandfather, I know that he was a member of one of the secret societies and, and they were, they were working, uh, through aggressive means for, for liberation and independence. They, they worked with the, for land rights. The land right movement started off in Mayo where they were. Uh, they had moved there from Northern Ireland. They had, it seems, been, uh, dispossessed there with other people, so they were given refuge in the in the hills of Mayo by the very kind people of very there's very nice people living in the west coast of Ireland. You'd you'd, you'd enjoy them, and the next time you're there, um, so and then my grandfather was involved in the thing, and his brothers all went to jail, and they were in um, any amounts of je uh, prisons, uh, and they were active. They were they they were fighting. What they were fighting against was an imperial force. That's what they they were fighting against the British Empire. They weren't fighting against the English. They weren't fighting against Protestants. There was no sectarianism. They believed they were fighting against an empire, which which they were, and subsequently. My my grandfather became a member of parliament, a constitutional politician. James Tunney was his name. And his son was a politician. He became a conservative uh, uh, politician, I suppose you'd describe him. Uh, James Tunney as well. So it, it runs in the blood. So mm -hmm. I don't want to get involved. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, yes, it's true. I, I remember Dublin d escaped the horrors that went on uh, in Northern Ireland in 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 my lifetime. But I remember the, when, uh, the day, for example, when the Three, uh, three big explosions went off in Dublin. Although we were, I was outside the city centre. The the houses were shaking, and um, uh, it was horrific. So I mean, so you could feel you could you could feel the thing, and a horrific loss of life. Um, and Ireland is a small place, so you cross paths with people who were involved in those things. W one point to mention about it is that. Um, it wasn't a sectarian issue issue initially, because when the Normans came to Ireland, 
in 1169, everyone was, was, was Catholic. So the Normans were Catholic, and the, well, the people had been Catholic, mm -hmm. not, not entirely. So it wasn't a sectarian issue till later. Yep. So that's important. It was a colonial struggle. Ireland was the only colonial uh, nation in Europe, if you think about it. So people talk about Europe, Europe. Ireland is not to be put in the same category, if you, if you want to be uh, accurate about that, because Ireland was a colonial uh, struggling against a colonial power. Uh, and in that sense, it has the, all the history that goes with that. And that's why as well, that existing links with India were, were very close because India had the same experience. So you were talking about Aurobindo mm -hmm. recently, a very interesting talk. He was, he was very well informed about, about Irish politics. He knew what was going on better than some of the people in, in Ireland. It's quite remarkable, as was Gandhi. Gandhi was influenced by Daniel O'Connell, who, who was in favor of peaceful struggle. He was against, he said that not one drop of blood should be shed for, for nationalism. And, and I, I agree with that. I, 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 I think that's the approach. But Aurobindo, when he engaged in his mystical pursuits, he intended to come back to politics, but he never did. It goes back to one of your issues about how does mysticism come into the world. But the violence was awful. Uh, I don't believe it'll, it'll, it'll uh, start off again. Uh, it, it, it was, uh, violence is always a simple solution. Uh, unfortunately, people think it's a simple solution, but it's not. It has long-term consequences. Um, I, I, I don't support it. Affected it. it did shape the consciousness, but it was always there. And unfortunately, the history of the uh, of the empire was not good. So the people had a legitimate right historically to to, to fight against injustice and oppression. And again, so I, I talked to my father's uncle, who was in jail, etc. Very very mellow, nice man. Uh, very religious. Very easy going. Um, and, and he didn't have any bitterness. He didn't have any bitterness about, against the soldiers or imprisoned him or anything like that. And, and he would have talked to people that had survived the famine. So, you know, you're going back to another horror story. So, so, uh, Flann O'Brien mentions, uh, in one of his books, um, The Poor Mouth about the history of Ireland. He said, one of the characters says, First there was one misfortune, and then there was another misfortune, and then a bigger misfortune came on that misfortune, and then a great big misfortune came on that misfortune, till finally a big grey misfortune came. To, so that, so one can't go into to, to, to all those things. So history, a lot of people have, have... Another point as well from English history, and this was a, a point that was made in a book on African slavery. Uh, the, the author started off by saying that what happened in the United States in relation to the structure of slavery, everything had happened in Ireland beforehand. Not quite the same, not, not everything, that, that, that's a mistake, uh, that's an oversimplification, but a lot of the features mm -hmm. had happened uh, in Ireland. And they had also happened to the English uh, poor people, the people at the bottom of the rung. They had suffered from the same imposition from the Normans, etc. So, so we, we have to be very careful about making these things about particular groups and about, and being divisive. I'm against, against that, uh, process. So, um, you pointed out, for example, that I think it was in the 16th or 17th century, there were Algerian pirates who came and captured Irish fishermen and brought them back to Africa as slaves. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you don't hear some of these examples, but there was a whole village, and I think it was in Baltimore and Cork, which was they kidnapped everyone and they took them back to uh, Algeria 
and there were there was a lot of of uh, sea traffic between. Um, see, Ireland is seen to be remote, but it's not remote if you're traveling by sea. Um, so there were Algerian pirates. There's evidence that they, they used to take fishermen that were out in their boats. They certainly uh, did that raid in Baltimore. And they, they were sometimes conscripted by Irish rebels. So one of the great figures, again from Mayo, uh, in Irish history is Grace O'Malley. So Grace O'Malley was uh, the pirate queen. So, so she was a very strong, independent person. She captained ships. She robbed other ships. She conscripted or she, she got the help of Algerian pirates as well, it seems. And she got into trouble for fighting against the, the, the British Navy. So she went to, to London. She went to Greenwich. She had an audience with Queen Elizabeth I. So this is quite remarkable. So you have an Irish and English speaking woman coming from, from, uh, Ireland that regarded herself as a queen meeting Elizabeth I, one of the most powerful figures in, in, uh, in history. And they met in Greenwich. They seem to have got on very well. And Queen Elizabeth I seems to have treated her as her equal. And she was interested in her experience as a woman leader in that condition. Uh, and they communicated in Latin. Mm. So, uh, she, she got what she want. She sailed back to, uh, she sailed back to Ireland. When she came, came back to Dublin, uh, she arrived into Hoth, which is out, out uh, outside Dublin. I don't know if you, you've been there, just the, the coastal, mm. the, the port, um, the harbour. And she arrived up at the castle and she asked for hospitality. Uh, now the laws of hospitality in Ireland, uh, were very strong that you, you were, you were compelled to be hospitable to strangers, to travellers. Uh, it's quite remarkable from the old system of Irish laws, which we may talk about. Um, and they, they wouldn't give her, give her lodging. So she kidnapped the son of, of the castle and took him back until she... Now, this castle, Holt Castle, has been in the same Norman family for 800 years, and only recently they sold it. So they had been, and they always since then retain a plate for a visitor that might come to this day. It's a remarkable. Interesting story. Yeah. Let's talk about Oscar Wilde, another great Irish writer who had, uh, as you've explained to me, I didn't really realize it, uh, a deep interest in the mystical. Yeah. Um, Oscar Wilde's mother was a formidable figure who was very open to Irish culture, the other world, the legend. She was into that. So uh, Oscar wasn't so, didn't appear to be on the surface, so interesting that he wanted to conquer the world in his own inimitable style. Um, so he went a different route. Um, he, there's interesting connections as well. Like, for example, I think Oscar Wilde's wife used to be the girlfriend of Bram Stoker. This is how small, uh -huh. how small the author are. of Dracula, of Dracula, yeah, another uh, Irishman. Yeah, yeah, it's it's incredible. It's, Ireland is very small. That's one of the main features. So your paths are going to cross. There's more possibility of meeting people in the smaller things than elsewhere than a big mm -hmm. spread out country. Um, so uh, there, there's some ev evidence of a, a slightly mystical bent in, in some of his writings. Uh, he, well, if, if you think of, if you think of uh, a portrait of Dorian Gray, yes. it's, quite, it's quite interesting in relation to the self and 
it, there, there are elements to that. It's kind of neglected. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of frightening novel. In, Definitely, in some way. He had elements of magic. Yes, magic, and also at that period. You had Robert Louis Stevenson, Jekyll and Hyde. You had this idea of a division in in, in the in the personality, two mm-hmm. types, and it was a very strong idea going around at the time, associated perhaps with the process of modernization, uh, the so self, for, the dark shadow. For all. viewers who may not be familiar, the, the basic idea is that uh, this portrait keeps growing older and older, but the man, Dorian Gray, uh, maintains his youth all the time as yes. his portrait changes. That's right. So, so the the portrait is a reflection of his true self, or is 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 inner self. So uh, it's a, it's a complex notion in that sense, and it's it, it is kind of scary in in a, in a very odd way. So, and in some way, obviously, this is going to reflect Oscar Wilde's mm-hmm. double kind of life that 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 came. He, he was in his lifetime very famous. He, he, he was one of the most famous figures. He was a, a mesmerizing conversationalist. He, he was a dandy. He dressed very well. He was very imposing. He was very witty. He could come out with one-liners, the, the best one-liners. Uh, uh, there's so many. But he did make one, one that I, I like. He said that when bankers get together, uh, they will talk about art. When artists get together, they will talk about money. <laughs> so I thought, it's quite profound. It's, uh, it, it's, uh, um, um, so, uh, but, and there's a very good biography by Richard Elman, which I like. It's, it's a very profound, uh, profound study. Uh, with the, the biography uh, is, is a work of art in itself. But when you follow the course of his life, it's interesting where he started and where he got to. So he goes to the top. And then, of course, we have to have to fall, and he fell terribly. So he was a very, he was a very sensitive man, and it's difficult to understand why he he took the challenge of the Marquis of Queensbury and got and and got engaged in in, in the court case or, or 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 went ahead with the court case. He, he was, if I recall correctly, he was convicted for homosexual yeah. crimes. He, he was convicted under the, I think it was the Offences Against the Person Act of 1861, which survived up until recently and in, into in my lifetime in Ireland. And uh, one, a person that I've met, uh, Senator David Norris, challenged that successfully and it led to the decriminalization in Ireland uh, of homosexuality, which had existed from from the UK legislation. Mm-hmm. Um but, uh, yeah, so, so he didn't have to go ahead of the case. Recently, I began to think, think about and reading some material which indicates that his mother may have pressurized him not to run away from the, the trial, or there may have been mm-hmm. the idea f- from his mother that he should go, he shouldn't run away from this. It's, it's interesting. And maybe in some way, he was destined to be a, a martyr figure. Although he didn't, he didn't want to be, but he, he was destined to be. But um, when you read what he has written when he was in jail, it's, it's one of the most uh, profound statements of, of, of kind of human experience. And what was interesting when he was being transported to jail, he was one of the worst experiences of his life. He was on the, I think it was at Clapham. He was on the train station, and he was surrounded by a bunch of people who spit and cursed and ridiculed him. And he found that very difficult. He couldn't get over that. It kind of really affected him. Yeah. But strangely, when he went to prison, he said the prisoners were very kind to him. And he said that 
one other prisoner said to him, uh, we realize that it's more difficult for someone like you in here than it is for us. So he, he endured hard labor. Uh, and But you talked about the dark night of the soul. He had the dark night of the soul. And in fact, uh, the, the, it accurately describes... Um, uh, notice how the dark night has been appropriated oh, to yeah. another meaning. Dark uh -huh. night, dark night. That, that. But anyway, just <laughs> it, it, Batman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, seriously, uh -huh. this is that, that substitution effect. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, uh, inversion as well. But anyway, so he's in jail, and he describes in his in in his writings without without special attention his mother coming to him in the jail. Uh, is she appeared to him and, and in so spirit? It, yeah. So so so. He didn't. He didn't seem to find this strange. So it, it was clear to me that he's he's quite open. So in the jail, he he writes this letter, which has been called the profundest, the, fun, the, the the most, the best thing he wrote in my view. So he write, wrote a letter. He didn't intend it for public publication. In fact, the name de profundus or from the depths uh, in the Latin, uh, he didn't put it uh, put that name on. But it was published. It's available. It's a, he's out of copyright, so it's available on, on the internet for everyone to read. But he, he, he tries to understand everything. So he goes into a deep intellectual study in his head of what he has learned and what life is about. And he, he, he comes back to Christianity and he sees Christ as a great artist. This is how he can approach Christ as a great artist. And he begins to understand what the Christian thing meant when you cut away all the other side. Um, and in the end, he said that the most important things he was going to focus on for the rest of his life were mystical things, the mystis, mystis, mystical in, in life, uh, in, in nature. So he had, he had come to that path very, very late after a, a, a horrific, a horrific struggle. But, um, uh, the, that's, that book uh, I would certainly recommend to read mm -hmm. and you get a full but and what's another interest it's a strange the way Ireland is so small he was he was prosecuted by the great uh, barrister Irish barrister Sir Edward Carson so Edward Carson was a unionist so he was a, a unionist member of parliament that means that he was one of the people that wanted to maintain the link between Ireland uh, and Britain so he would have been opposed to the nationalist uh, movement. Uh, so he was a great barrister. He was very, very effective, very successful. Uh, and it seemed that he had qualms about, he didn't really want to ridicule. Uh, he didn't want, uh, want to set out to be too sadistic or whatever in, in his, his dealing with, um, with Oscar Wilde on the trial. And Oscar Wilde saw this also as a kind of theatrical performance, which, mm -hmm. uh, but, one should never regard the court appearance as a theatrical performance. Just a, that's a free legal advice to anyone that's watching. But, uh, uh, even if they, even if they wear wigs, but uh, Sir Edward Carson had actually gone on holidays with Oscar Wilde as a child. Oh. So imagine they were playing on the beach in Waterford, and then the wheel of history turns around. And he's prosecuted. It's, it's incredible. Um, so it was a successful prosecution under the law because the, the barristers are following what the rules say. The problem was not, not the problem was with, with the rules. Because of my own interest in parapsychology, 
uh, my professional interest in parapsychology, I have to bring up Eileen Garrett, a very important person in the history of parapsychology and very Irish. She was born in County Mead, not far from Newgrange, funnily enough. Now, I'm not saying that that had any impact on her, and she had a particularly traumatic background as far as I remember from in her upbringing. But uh, what I would suggest is that there was some openness in general in the people to the other world that manifested itself, not just in, say, the Catholic tradition or the, uh, the peasant tradition, but also for the aristocracy and in the Protestant tradition. So, so we, we can't put it into one camp. It affected a lot of people. So, so she was a very significant figure. And, and, and as far as I recall, she had success in relation, if you want to call it that, in relation to the predictions about the airship in particular that, that crashed. And, and so she has some specific results mm -hmm. that, that demonstrate uh, her, her, uh, she well, she was a trance medium. Yeah, she she went into trance. She worked with many scientists. She was very important in bringing together the uh, scientific community to study the phenomenon of mediumship and trance. And she mm. was very open to any interpretations. Yes, and uh, as far as I recall, at the end of her life, she didn't she didn't ascribe any deeper meaning. She was she was quite. She could stand back and be objective about it as well. She didn't seem to be too attached to the process. Was mm -hmm. But another figure that comes up, and, and she, I'm, I'm sure she would have come up in your discussions here, uh, is Bridie Murphy. Yes. So in the reincarnation <laughs> studies, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's no surprise to me that it's an Irish woman that appears in, in the context. So in the reincarnation context. Maury Bernstein's book, The Search for Bridie Murphy, involves yeah. hypnotic regression of, uh, as I recall, an American woman yes. who recalled a lifetime, I think, in the 17th century or so in, in Ireland. Mm, yes. So, so, I mean, uh, that's another yeah. interesting connection. You say, well, it's not an accident or, 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 or yeah. what? Um, so, uh, so there, there are a number of figures that, that, that came from Ireland, as we, we, we can see as well. Some literary critics, although I don't read so much of them anymore, <laughs> uh, but the, uh, as, I, as I read them before, when they were talking about the Protestant imagination, if one can say such thing exists in Ireland or descendants, mm -hmm. they claim that the, uh, the Protestant aristocracy had a great fear of being supplanted by the, Catholics. Mm. So there was always this fear element which affected their imagination, which is, and therefore they, they imagined that that was where Bram Stoker came from. And of course, if you look in the art context, Francis Bacon was born in Dublin. And his art had a similar kind of, when I should, when. You're my, talking about the modern artist. The modern artist, Fra yeah. Francis Bacon, the great, yeah. the great painter, uh, was born in Dublin, uh, and brought up in County Kildare, uh, before his, his father sent him to Berlin to to cure him of his, his homosexual tendencies, but I don't think it was the, the, it was the wrong place to send him if he wanted to do that <laughs> in the twenties at a great time. So, but Francis Bacon is interesting because he said that the images came into his head like a projector. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting to talk about it. So he talks uh, in a more as a psychic way, which is kind of uh, ignored in some way. So. Um, uh, he was also, he also had that, some of the fear element, which, but you, when my daughter saw the, uh, Francis Bacon pictures in the book I had at home, they said, Oh, look at all the monsters. And I thought it was a good description of, uh -huh. uh, but I, I, I like Francis Bacon. And I, I mentioned it. I met a, uh, Francis Arrowback who was around the same time. That's a mm -hmm. different story. But, uh, 
So, so you have those figures. But if you look at the diaspora and you look in the United States and you look at a number of people that were interested in consciousness. Now, as far as I can see, I may be mistaken on some of them, but they do have a strong Irish connection. So we, we can say Terence McKenna, mm -hmm. uh, Timothy Leary, uh, Philip, Philip K. Dick, um, we, we, we can go through a whole list of people. Yeah. Robert uh, Anton Wa uh, Watson. Uh, Wilson. Uh, Wilson, sorry. Uh, yes, who was a yeah, good yeah. friend of mine back yes. in the day. Yeah, and who went, uh -huh. went to live in, 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 uh, in Ireland. He had a wonderful story. I know he used to talk about the puka. The puka, yes. The, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Uh, Irish image of uh, like uh, Harvey the rabbit, a giant six-foot-tall yeah, rabbit. Yeah, that, that was his interpretation. I listened to that. There's variants of that. So uh -huh. there was also variants. There was variants of different places in Ireland of what that was, and, and it was also used as a general word for all types of ghosts. So there could yeah. be different things, but but he understood that. And, and in fact, uh, I don't know if you've ever read the Illuminatus oh, trilogy. It's a great book, a, a masterpiece of literature. Yeah. I want to come back though to the puka because he had yeah, a great yeah. saying. He someone asked him, "Well, do you believe in the puka?" He says, yeah. "Of course not." But yeah. then he said, "But I don't think the puka believes in me." I yeah. think. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's right. Uh, I, I, I was, I, I, I worked in Africa for the United Nations and for mm -hmm. on, a, on some an advisory project, and I, I, I was after being out at a lot of meetings. Uh, I, I bumped into a, a previous lecturer of mine from Trinity College, who was then a minister for water in South Africa and Mandela's government, who was, mm -hmm. they were opening a big dam there. Uh, so, uh, I was having a drink at a bar and I, I, there was a, an Englishman there, as it happens, who was a, a very rational economist, details, statistics. And I thought in conversation at bars, you talk about things like fairies and all. Mm -hmm. So I, I began to tell him a story uh, that one of my relations had told about seeing fairies. And he got up and walked away. <laughs> he looked at me yeah. like that. And he, 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 I've he, had that experience, yeah, yeah. telling people about my you know, research with Ted Owens, another yes. fellow who probably had Irish ancestry. But, you know, before we close, we really have to talk about James Joyce. Yeah. I mean, th this man revolutionized literature. Yeah. And it really brought the subconscious mind into, into the realm of consciousness through his writing. That's, that's a good point. That, that's a very good way of saying it. That, that's actually a better way of saying it than I, I could have conceived it. But let's do, just refer to who James Joyce was. So James Joyce starts off, he was educated by the Jesuits. Uh, he wanted to write he wrote a series of short stories called The Dubliners, uh, including the, the short story The Dead. Some people have claimed it's the best sh short story in the English language. I think that's a bit overblown, but th there's an in it it's interesting. He wrote that uh, for, uh, for the, piece, uh, the Feast of the Epiphany, uh, uh, Little Christmas in, Ar in Ireland, and it's an interesting little... It was little made story. into a wonderful made movie. John Huston, yeah, J yeah. John Huston came to live in Ireland, of course, as well. He lived uh, in Ireland, the film director. So, uh, so Joyce then moves on, portrait of an artist as a young man, portrait of the artist. He's beginning to think, which path will I go in life? Will I become a Jesuit priest or will I? And then there's this scene where he sees uh, a, a girl on the beach and he said, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a priest. I'm going mm. this route. Actually, on Clon in Clontarf, and another figure who, who lived in Clontarf was Schrodinger. 
Erwin Schrodinger. De Valera invited to Ireland. He lived there for a substantial period in, in that area. De Valera anyway, being the political sorry, leader. Sorry, the president uh, of Ireland who, yeah. who I met when I was small. Another story. Yeah. But um, So then Joyce explores language. He looked towards Ibsen and Strindberg, who I, I've also written about in Swedish, uh, and he was influenced by them. I think that Strindberg was the biggest influence. A lot of critics say it was Ibsen. I think it was Strindberg. Joyce didn't acknowledge that. I think he didn't acknowledge it because he took so much from Strindberg. Strindberg was a real pathfinder. Strindberg who had, was also a mystic, an alchemist who had gone through various experiments to try and find the meaning of life in Paris, as uh, evidenced in the book Inferno. So, so Joyce writes Ulysses, which is about Leopold Bloom, who is a, a Jewish figure who walks around uh, and spends the day in Dublin on his various adventures. Mm -hmm. It's based on, on, on the myth, obviously. And then later on, he goes to Finnegan's Wake, which is very important for Joseph Campbell, who is, of course, the, 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 another great Irish-American who is interested in consciousness. Yeah, the so, great mythologist. The great mythologist, uh, mm -hmm. anthropologist, mm -hmm. and... and and he was very, he was very much into Finnegan's Wake. Mm -hmm. And Finnegan's Wake. Whom I had the pleasure of interviewing. Campbell? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think your name dropping too. I can't beat you. <laughs> I was talking to you this morning. I was talking to you last night. And I mentioned the names. Uh, Fair Band. Yeah, you met him. Father Malachy Martin, another yeah. significant Irish figure. Mm -hmm. uh, interested in exorcisms, the devil, all that kind of stuff, history of the Vatican, yeah. Fatima, and you, you've interviewed him. So, yes. so, so it's, it's quite incredible. So uh, that's impressive. Um, I have to say, though, my interviews with Joseph Campbell are not available. It's a shame. Uh, yes, okay. the Joseph Campbell Foundation insisted that they owned the rights to them and that we had to remove, remove them. So they're very hard to uh, get any longer but maybe you'll you'll have to talk to an irish copyright lawyer that might be able to help you <laughs> i used to teach that <laughs> anyway uh so joseph campbell looks to finnegan's wake and also finnegan's wake was important for anthony burgess who wrote a clockwork orange and mm -hmm. uh, and uh what finnegan's wake is is joyce trying to interpret what the night time is what the so language is broken down, it's deconstructed, it's reformed. He refers to loads of different languages, loads of different co uh, concepts. H.G. Wells hated it, for example, which uh, I'm not a great fan of H.G. Wells, as, as we can talk about. Another, yeah. But um, So it's a very difficult book. It's not a book that you, sh you can read from cover to cover, or you should, I don't think. It's a, it's a circular book, so River Run past Even Adams, it starts off, and then it... So it reflects the journey of the river from its source at the river Liffey uh, to the time it meets the sea at Hoth, where we and have... And it's also written in a style known as the stream of consciousness. Stream of consciousness. We have the stream of consciousness, consciousness in uh, Ulysses, but when he gets to, uh, when he gets to uh, Finnegan's Wake, he's thinking about concepts of musicality. Mm -hmm. How does it sound? What's... I think also he was deeply interested in a type of hypnosis. I thought that I, I thought there is a kind of hypnotic form, a breaking down of language, and there is, I think, from my explorations in poetry, a way that you can approach texts that, if you follow them, that it will change your perception. It will begin to 
confuse the mind so that your subconscious is open up. So you're reading something and the logical brain says, this makes no sense, what is this? Well, I can't understand this. But if you begin to just go with the spelling, the spell, you begin to become hypnotized or drawn into a different type of reality. And it's a very, it's a very complex idea. And he said uh, about his books that the academics will be trying to understand these things for hundreds of years. So your description was actually, uh, actually a, a very, very useful one. Uh, the way, the way you put it was exactly right. I'm a, a fan or a student of William James' work, his classic essay on the stream of consciousness written, I think around in the 1890s, I suspect, uh, influenced Joyce. Yes, yes, that, 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 that's, uh, that's, uh, correct. And, and we've talked before as well that pragmatism, as a philosophy, has influenced Cubism. Mm. The idea that you look at a, a face from different perspectives, for example, and Picasso uh, has has its roots in some of those philosophical traditions, which is sometimes uh, ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I, I, when I when the end of Joyce, when I, I think about what he was trying to do, it's still in my mind it's unclear. It's it's difficult. I have to keep revisiting to say well. Well, what is it he wanted? He said himself, well, what's my work, what's my work of art worth in the end? It's worth no more than a pound of butter, you know, <laughs> in the price. So, so, and to some extent, that's true about all works of art. Um, but there is an interesting idea. I think, for example, well, the word quark comes from James Joyce. Yes. So he invented words and people went to look there. And I, you could use it in a way, and I'm not recommending, but, but you can use it uh, uh, to facilitate the imagination in relation to perceiving how things will unfold in the future. Sometimes you can approach these texts with a different fr- frame of mind. Uh-huh. And in the same way as you might approach the I Ching, as Jung would have approached the yeah. I Ching, and find synchronicities or use it to bring your mind somewhere else or use it to escape from unduly narrow micro focus in your mind when you can't escape from a yes. Well, James Tunney, I have to say, you're, you are a scholar and a poet and an artist, and you, you have brought to this discussion by your very words a kind of sensitivity to the nuances of consciousness that I think are the very embodiment of what we're trying to get at here, the Irish contribution to our understanding of consciousness. Thank you so much for this discussion. Thank you. I appreciate those uh, kind words, and uh, you're a very good facilitator of that process. Thank you. And thank you for being with us.